Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I dreamed this joke a few weeks ago. It doesn't really make sense, but somehow I thought I had come up with the most brilliant thing in all of humor. And I told my son, and it's now his favorite joke. Why did the chicken cross the very busy road? To get to the... I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from and a peek inside the mind of the great graphic novelist Daniel Klaus. Yes. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak with him later about his brand new book entitled Patience, so wait for that. I get it. Also coming up, comedian Cameron Esposito talks about what dolphins feel like. The band Quilt shares a dinner party playlist, and Brendan learns how to use an eel tack. Bad news for eel. Yes, but first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Former pro wrestling giant Hulk Hogan has scored another win against Gawker. President Obama is set to meet today with Cuban President Raul Castro in Havana. The United Nations says the warring parties in the Yemen conflict have agreed on a ceasefire to start on the 10th of April. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Sapri Beneshore. He is a reporter at Marketplace and co-host of Actuality, their podcast on the inner workings of the global economy. Sabri. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, it's a story in Scientific American about the discovery of the modern peanut's ancestor. And we're not talking about Charles Schultz. No. <laughs> You're no. talking about the actual legume. <laughs> yeah. So it's in the same family as peas and... Lentils. Lentils. Yeah. And they grow underground. Did you know that, that peanuts actually grow underground? I did not know that. So the peanut, the modern peanut as we know it, is a hybrid between two sort of semi-wild peanuts that mm-hmm. got together and did the peanut nasty <laughs> 10,000 years ago. <laughs> it was in the uh, deep in the Andes, and one of the parents was thought to be extinct, mm-hmm. and they found, oh, look, it's actually still alive. Wow. Oh. Mm-hmm. But what is the significance of finding this long-lost relative? I think they were actually looking for this ancestor because, aside from just wanting to know where the hell peanuts came from, yeah. uh, you know, looking at this ancestor, they think they can find sort of long-lost peanut traits that can help with, like, drought resistance or disease resistance, maybe, that, you know, that could make better right. better modern peanuts. A self-spreading peanut, a peanut that comes out of the ground mm. in butter form. Like, like a kind of like an oil geyser of peanut butter? <laughs> you need to talk to Monsanto right now. <laughs> That's right. All right, well, if Rico does talk to Monsanto, maybe you'll cover it on your podcast, Actuality, which is about the workings of global business. <laughs> we will. We totally will. <laughs> Sabri Benisher. Thanks for the small talk. Uh, You're welcome. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, and then we give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our internationally revered history lesson with booze. Internationally revered? Well, Canada. That's, yeah, that's international. Let's start with the history part. Around this time back in 1909, Arctic explorer Robert Peary became the first man to set foot on the North Pole. Or did he? Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Forget Ali versus Frazier. The biggest fight of the 20th century was Robert Peary versus Frederick Cook. They were both explorers, and they loved cold places. Cook claimed to be the first guy to summit Alaska's Mount McKinley, while Peary specialized in expeditions into the vast Arctic Circle. The two were friendly rivals until 1909. That's when Peary returned from an Arctic expedition and announced he and his crew had dog-sledded to the North Pole. The first men 
ever to get there. Only problem? Just weeks before, Cook had returned from a long Arctic expedition and announced he'd reached the pole a year earlier. A public battle ensued. Newspapers polled readers about which man they believed. Peary's supporters painted Cook as a fraud, who not only hadn't reached the pole, but never summited McKinley either. Eventually, a congressional committee was convened to weigh the evidence. They named Peary first man to the pole. For a while, that's what history books said, too. But was it the truth? Nowadays, most folks think not. True, Cook's own crewmen later contradicted his polar claims, and turns out he did fib about the whole McKinley thing. But Peary's claims are suspect, too. In the 80s, several studies of his records concluded he'd missed the pole by miles. So maybe neither Cook nor Peary was first. In which case, the runners-up were probably a crew who got to the pole decades later, in 1968 using snowmobiles. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to pair along with it. I'm joined by Bob Picorni. He is bartender at Lavelle's Bistro in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is pretty much as close as we can get to the Arctic Circle and still get a cocktail. Is that fair to say, Bob? I think that's probably true, yeah. Do you get a lot of explorers who are making their way even further north coming coming through your joint? Absolutely, we do, yeah. can always kind of tell they're pretty sunburned and grizzled. Yeah. You know, you can kind of pick them out of a crowd. And they're missing some fingers, maybe? Or... <laughs> yeah, quite likely. <laughs> so what's in your drink? So when you're thinking about these two guys, it's the first quarter of the 20th century, right? They're Americans, um, yeah. so it's got to be whiskey. That makes sense. But also, these guys, they're bitter, because I think neither of them really made it to the pole. So on top of that whiskey, you're going with Campari. Okay. Um, but you're, it's still not bitter enough, so you need two dashes of, of bitters, you know, maybe Angostura. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they thought they made it to the pole, so they're celebrating. So on top of that is a little bit of champagne. All right. Finally, and this, this is sort of silly, but we're doing it anyway, you blend it. This is a blended drink, All right. like Jimmy Buffett in a blender. So that's it. That's the Bitter Explorer. So the name, you're, you're sticking with the name, the Bitter Explorer. I'm doing it. Now I have I'm a question. It. So you're, you're a bartender in, in Fairbanks, Alaska. Do yeah. people order a lot of icy, slushy drinks? Because it seems <laughs> to me more like a hot toddy culture. Isn't that weird? Um, <laughs> it's not. I don't think I've served a hot drink all winter. Huh. I don't know I don't know what it is, but uh, my girlfriend is a graduate student. And in fact, we talked about this last night, and she's, a, she's an anthropology student. She thought that these guys could never have made a hot drink anyway. There's, oh, there's nothing growing you know, above the Arctic Circle, so they wouldn't have been able to make a fire. So all incidentally, right. a frozen drink, I think, is quite appropriate. Wow, so that's that's verified by a scholar. This is the it most. Is. It totally is. This is a, a very special edition of History Lesson with Booze. <laughs> it is. Enrico, just to give credit where it's due, All if right. we assume neither Cook nor Peary made it to the pole, actually the first guys to get there weren't those dudes on snowmobiles. Michelle mentioned no. No, it was good. probably a crew of guys in the 1920s who floated over the pole in a blimp. That doesn't count. It kind of counts, no, actually. It's floating over it, safe inside a warm blimp. That's not don't, right. Don't dismiss them just because they were smart about <laughs> how they explored the pole. That's true, I guess. They did it in luxury. 
Uh, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, while we're on the subject of cocktails, we would like you to share a few with us in Cuba. This is no joke. We are going to be hosting a tour through Cuba this November. It's kind of like the one President Obama took this week, minus all the press conferences and the world-shaking global importance. And no secret service. But that's yeah. right. Cuba is changing fast, so this is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime trip showcasing the country's music, arts, gastronomy, history, plus us. Nice. We're going to be there. And unlike the president, we're inviting you. You'll find all the details at dinnerpartydownload.org slash Cuba. Check it out. And now the soundtrack in which excellent musicians DJ your dinner party. And here to do that are the four members of pop band Quilt. Hmm. We caught up with them a few weeks back at Marfa Myths, an arts and culture festival co-sponsored by their record label Mexican Summer. They have a new album out called Plaza. Here they are with a healthy playlist. We are the band Quilt, and this is our dinner party soundtrack. So for our first song, we're going to play Vegetables by the Beach Boys. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chow down my vegetables. This came out on their album, Smiley Smile. I love cooking to that record. I think it's a great one. I like how straightforward the lyrics are. You know, to start off our dinner party with something so uh, direct. And uh, we got our intentions, like, laid out right on the table. You know, this party's going to be cool. This party's going to be full of food. And it's going to be healthy. I'm going to keep well my vegetables card off and sell my vegetables I. Paul McCartney chews celery as a percussive instrument on this song. It was recorded in Abbey Road Studios, and he just happened to be there, I believe. I tried to kick the ball, but my tinny flew right off. I'm red. Is this a vegetarian meal? Yes. Paul's a vegetarian. Yes. And I got so into that record. Oh, it's so good. I heard it in high school for the first time, and I was like, this is cooler than the Beach Boys songs that I grew up hearing. <laughs> this is weird. For a second song, we go with F.J. McMahon and Sister Brother. Sister, brother, come and hold my hand. This album came out in 1969. It's called Spirit of the Golden Juice, and it was a, just kind of a small-run record that mostly was distributed in California. Golden Juice was apparently what he made when he was in the military in the 60s. I think it was a type of whiskey or bourbon. You help friend, sister. Yeah, I love this just to uh, add some chill vibes to the uh, the conversation. I keep I hate keep saying that it's chill, but it's like just the perfect mellow like rhythm section kind of chugging along and really nice looping guitars. When people start hearing this song, it's when they're going to be like tasting the food and they're going to be like, wow, like this is really good. For our next song, the end of the dinner party, we're going to play Crochet by Simonde. This is from their self-titled album, released in 1972. Close your eyes. 
they were like a 12 or 13 piece group from London. They're just really wild and they have a great kind of soul to them. Their music is sampled a lot in hip hop songs. I like how you can sink into the song. It almost reminds me of like Charlie Brown music, like Peanuts almost too. Like a soulful, spiritual Vince Guaraldi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By now in the party, people are on their second or third adult beverage, and um, people are starting to like get up and dance a little bit. They're ready to get their groove on. We've got our creme brulee out as an optional dessert. Creme brulee is gonna crack as soon as this song starts. If we had to pick one of our own songs to close at our dinner party, it would be Hissing My Plea. And uh, I suppose this would be at the end when people are... Cleaning some dishes during... during um... No, we break the dishes. A dinner party soundtrack from Quilt. Their new album is called Plaza, and they are touring the U.S. now. All right, coming up, Daniel Klaus talks about his latest graphic novel. Cameron Esposito talks about how the Supreme Court changed her sense of humor. And I get a feel for Eel when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Daniel Klaus, the man behind legendary comics 8-Ball and Ghost World, talks about his newest graphic novel called Patience. Plus, Sierra Tischgart of New York Magazine guides Brendan through the brave new world of eel. But first, here with us is a very funny woman. Yes, and her name is Cameron Esposito. She's been named a comic to watch by the New York Times and Jezebel. And you may, in fact, have watched her on IFC's Marin or E's Chelsea Lately. Her 2014 album, Same Sex Symbol, was named one of the year's best by the AV Club. And now she's just released a new album, which was also filmed as a stand-up special. It's called Marriage Material, which was filmed two days before marrying her wife. Amazing. Here's a taste of it. Most queer people were raised in straight families, and most queer families actually end up raising straight kids. So, if you wanted to cut down on the number of gay people being created, you would have to actually outlaw straight marriage, which, by the way, I'm not in favor of. I'm an ally. I just bring up that point because if you hear somebody be like, where are the gays coming from? You could be like, the call is coming from inside the house. (laughs) That's right, you bunch of gay people factories. (laughs) Can you say my name again? I love to be on 
NPR shows because my name is so precisely pronounced. Really? Mm-hmm. Just say it again. Cameron Esposito. Like, isn't that nice? <laughs> I just feel like I'm used to being introduced by comics, and so it's like, Cameron Esposito. You know, like, it's it's a real yeah, different yeah. sort of a vibe. It's not about But, like, diction. it's the way that the Ito, like, you really nail it, you know? Well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not making this up. There was a bully in my high school named Mark Esposito, so. Oh, so you're getting back at him by pronouncing my name well? There's a Cameron Esposito. <laughs> no, I'm saying I talk about him in, with my therapist twice a week. Oh, so. yeah, so you can really nail that Instant name. Instant recall. He's got it yeah. in mind. <laughs> Let, let's get to a few questions. So, you, filming this two days before your marriage, first of all... Terrible you, idea. Yeah, are you a glutton so for punishment? Yeah, it was a stupid choice. <laughs> I, my, I said to my... My wife is also a comic, and so I was yes. like, listen, mm-hmm. listen, sweetie. I, that's not what I said. I said, darling love of my life, may I film a stand-up comedy special two days before our wedding because we are gay people and it's so new that we get to get married and we've been working for this for 10 years and uh, the idea was great, but that's too many things, it turns out. And the special <laughs> you, is great. I the think, behind the scenes a little a little fraught. Yeah, you're, yeah, it's too many things. You shouldn't do that. So, But you, you, know, you mentioned your wife, uh, Rhea Butcher. She's also a comedian. And oh, yeah. this question sprung to mind immediately. When you two are watching something or you make a funny observation together... Who gets to keep the joke? Oh, that's a great question. We decided long ago that all bets are off. We can each write jokes and they can both be funny. Because if we actually had to choose who Mm -hmm. gets each thing, an actual living nightmare. But do you ever then sometimes when you observe something in her presence that is funny and that she maybe doesn't notice, do you just keep it to yourself? (laughs) Yeah, you keep it to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You're the most boring marriage ever. One thing that is great is that we host a show on Tuesday nights at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles. It's also a podcast. Mm-hmm. People can listen to it. Okay. It's called Put Your Hands Together, where we tell stories together. Can you give us an example, maybe, of something well, that you... So recently we went on a cruise. We were performing on this cruise. Rhea had gone on the same cruise the year before, and we were supposed to go together. But I got booked on Marin, and I couldn't go at the last minute, and we had booked all of these excursions. So Rhea just did those things by herself. Okay. So like three months later, we got in the mail a CD that was full of pictures of Rhea posing romantically next to a dolphin. <laughs> so something that we talk about, that we have been talking about on stage, I just have Rhea describe what it's like to touch a dolphin again and again. Because you know what I would have said? Taut. I would have said it would be like a real taut body, like a hard body. <laughs> yeah, like a sausage like a, or like, Yeah, like a sausage. I was going to say like an Arnold Schwarzenegger mm. arm. But mm. you're right, a sausage is the same thing. You're right. I was thinking like an olive because it's smooth. Oh. An olive? Yeah. But an olive isn't what? taut. No, I just But imagine mean, like, a dolphin olive. But doesn't like... it feel like a dolphin has been stuffed? Like, it feels like it's cased. It feels like there's a casing. It's shiny and clear. Sausage is all, like, mushy. Well, it's you're shiny making sausages wrong, first of all. I bet you dolphins taste like sea olives. No, the, I'm not talking like... about the taste. No, I'm talking oh. about the feel of a dolphin. <laughs> she said, okay. you know what she said? Do you want to hear the answer? Yes. Squishy. What? Isn't that mind-blowing? She no. said they're squishy. Like Mm-mm. spongy. Mm-mm. Was she touching it in the right place? Its whole body. You touch a bo- Where do you touch a dolphin? <laughs> I, don't, I would touch its back. Yeah, you touch on its back or its armpit, right? Like, what's it? What are the parts? What? Of it a doesn't dolphin? have an armpit. What do you mean its armpit? Well, where does a fin meet the dolphin then? <laughs> That's true. That's got to be the armpit of the a dolphin. Fin pit. It's a fin pit. It's. A, I think we're being very human centric right now. I think we're imposing. Our ideas of anatomy Listen, onto the dolphin. I don't think we started that. Dolphins are the ones who are so smart and talk and stand and stuff. Oh, and now we're yeah, humanizing true. them? That's true. They're coming at us with all these kind of teeth where <laughs> yeah, they look like, like people. How dare they? They have TV shows completely. Freaking dolphins, man. You can hear us talk about dolphins and all, all this and more. Dolphin Hour with Cameron and Rhea. <laughs> 
we, earlier in your career, I, I would say that your comedy is more about this kind of stuff, kind of absurd observations about the world. But as you've gone along, you've talked more about personal stuff. Was there a moment when that occurred? Well, this has been a really wild 15 years to be gay. As I was coming out, marriage equality came to Massachusetts, the first state, and I was there. I lived in Massachusetts at the time. So, like, all that was happening. And then there was really a time where... Every comic had their marriage equality bit as more and more yeah. states mm-hmm. started to pass marriage laws. Um, I mean, I would say that really it was unusual to be on a lineup where it wasn't brought up three or four times. And it was usually by, yeah. by straight dude comics because the majority of comics are straight dudes. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, even if it was from an allied perspective, even if the dude was getting on stage and being like, yay, this is good, I always found that the jokes were hey, we, me, this comic, and you, the audience, we agree mm. that gay people should get married, right? Mm. Like these mm-hmm. people that aren't here. <laughs> yeah, this right. other. And yeah, of co- I mean, it was so bizarre to me because, yeah, there's gay people in the audience. Also, there's a gay comic on your lineup. You know, mm. like this is not, <laughs> I think we have to talk about things, we have to humanize issues in order for them to not be issues, in order for them to be people, you know? I, I, yeah. So often I just felt like if I don't talk about this, then it, other people are deciding my fate. A question about that. So so the Supreme Court did make it legal for gay couples to marry last Good summer. Good job. Um, th- the court. Th- well done. Well being done, Supreme Court. appropriate. And it's not like, boom, um, equality has happened across the board. No. But society, as society you know, has moved a little bit closer to equality, does it change your writing or where you find jokes? Because as you said, 15 years ago, kind of a different climate. You're right. So it didn't solve everything. But I will say that my experience as a gay person was that I woke up in a totally different country. Like I went to bed in a country where this was a contentious mm-hmm. issue. And then I woke up the mm-hmm. next morning and all that was gone. Yeah. Just this huge, it's like, you know, Sisyphus and then just like, oh, it's a pebble. Yeah. It's in my pocket. I'm yeah. already at the top. Yeah, I did but it. It was so exciting. I mean, the first thing that I did was cried mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. hugged Rhea. And the second thing that I did was field a phone call from my dad, who was also crying and oh, really man. excited about it. And then the third thing that I did was turn to Rhea and say, now what are we going to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> Cameron Esposito, her new comedy special is called Marriage Material. You can watch it on the digital platform CISO or find the audio version at iTunes. We've got more info at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And Cameron will be back later in the show to answer your etiquette questions. So be good boys and girls and sit quietly till then. And now let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week it's Daniel Klaus. He got his start in the 80s drawing comics for Cracked Magazine, and he went on to become probably the most respected graphic novelist in America. His blend of humor, horror, realism, and surrealism has won him over a dozen Eisner and Harvey Awards, and he earned an Oscar nomination for adapting his comic Ghost World for the big screen. Dan's latest book is called Patience, and warning, we're about to reveal some spoilers. As you'll hear, he'd probably appreciate me telling you that. Uh, The book is about a devoted husband who literally travels through time to save his pregnant wife from a terrible fate. It's the longest book he's ever written, and since he himself is married with a kid, it feels like his most personal. When we spoke this week, I asked what sparked the idea. Well, certainly one of the impetuses, if that is a word. Impeti. For beginning. Is it impeti? I don't know. That's an interesting question. (laughs) But one of those things uh, for beginning the story was that horrible feeling of lying in bed at night and thinking like, you know, what if I wake up and... 
everybody's been murdered in their sleep except for me, you know, and you think, yeah. how could you go on? If your family was gone. Yeah, or just if something as horrible as what happens to this guy in the story happened to me, I think I would not even react as well as he does. You know, thinking how something like that yeah. would crush you to such a degree that you would become a shell of yourself. And so I was trying to think of, you know, how could you take a character who's sort of a happy, well-adjusted 25-year-old and turn him into a very different type of person over the course of 30 years. But where does the sci-fi angle of that enter into it? Because I'll say I started reading the book and it's a, you know, the type of milieu I've come to expect in a Daniel Klaus novel. It's kind of people struggling to get by, a little bit neurotic, kind of the very realistic difficulties of an average life. And then the literally the, the page turns and that's all different. Well, I, I sort of naively hoped that that nobody would know what was going to happen in the book. I forgot that we live in the modern world. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> no, I mean, it's so spoiled by now. There's some of the, you know, I've had, I've had people introduce me at bookstores now who tell all the story, like up until the very <laughs> end. You guys didn't do that at all, but I wanted it to have that shock of, you know, Janet Lee being stabbed in the shower. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to feel like you were comfortably in one of my stories and then you were taken completely out of what you expected. But why? Because I wanted to do that to myself. Mm. You know, I wanted to see what would happen if I handled something that's not at all the kind of thing I normally do, but, but that I might be interested in as a reader. You know, I'm always kind of trying to create something that I would actually like to read. And this was the book I felt like I wanted to read and I had to do it myself, and so I don't even get the joy of reading it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and my my ideal reader always is the poor kid who goes into a used bookstore, if they do still exist, in, you know, 2037. You know, a kid going in, what's this spine looks interesting, what's this? And taking it off the shelf and having no idea what it is. That's my dream reader. Well, that seems as good a segue as any uh, to talk about your youth first encountering comic books. Um, it's my understanding that you, you first inherited a bunch of comics from your brother, right? Yeah, all the all the early comics I read were 10 years old at the time I got them. So they were all from, you know, the 50s up to, you know, 1962 or 3, from Archie comics to knockoffs of Donald Duck to crazy horror comics, mm-hmm. early superhero comics. I mean, I had, I still have Fantastic Four number one that he bought off the newsstand that oh I used to, I used to hold over my head in the rain, you know, when my grandma was coming to pick me up at a friend's house, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> so it's not in great shape. It's in pretty bad shape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. I also, I, I especially love this detail that you were reading these comics before you could actually read the English language. Yeah. So you found some of the images scary, even though they weren't intended that way? They all seemed fraught with with some kind of insanity. <laughs> and to this day, I look at these comics and they're immediately inspirational and just have this kind of electric quality. And, you know, I've sort of analyzed it over the years, and it seems like a lot of these guys that were doing the comics I read as a kid came out of World War II, uh. probably had severe PTSD and then we're just told like crank out these stories, you know, do eight pages in a day, just whatever pops into your head, oh, which is almost like automatic writing. So they're doing these deeply surreal stories and then just kind of trying to, you know, add dialogue that turns them into a semblance of an actual story. But mm. most of them are just crazy fever dreams that seem fraught with psychological import. Um 
you've also done a lot of rock album illustrations. And for a while in the 90s, you were kind of the in-house artist for sub-pop records. Yeah. I can imagine working with rock bands could either be extremely fun or completely infuriating. Well, when I just loved album cover art. That was sort of one of my favorite formats for artwork was to, to look at LPs and like artists like Jack Davis, who was a one of the EC artists, used to do these crazy, complicated covers for uh, Spike Jones and albums like that. And I oh, used wow. to just think, oh, that would be so great to be able to do that. So early on, I just agreed to do any album that came my way. But I'm, the rule was I never had to listen to it, which I can safely say I never listened to any of those <laughs> sub-pop <laughs> really? records even once. Yeah. You know, I knew I would think what I'm doing doesn't correspond to this music at all. But aren't you guaranteeing that it will have nothing to do with the music if you don't listen to it? Yeah, uh, that was fine with me. <laughs> um, you know, the one time I did have a little bit to do with the band was I did a uh, video for the Ramones. It yeah. was like one of their last songs. And I got to sort of talk to them on the phone a few times and hear their notes. And they had just the most deranged ideas of <laughs> of what to do. Did you take them? No, no. I, it was funny because I was like so in awe and just so in love with them. But then their ideas, were it's like they wouldn't have worked at all. <laughs> Joey just had all these ideas that made literally no sense. I remember he... The, he wanted to have a, a reference to Forrest Gump in the video, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not me. That's not the Klaus That's way. That's not me. And it was, I found it so great that he, he just loved that movie. Uh, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. One is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? Oh, uh, what do I think of the latest superhero movie? Oh. Like, everybody assumes I have an opinion. You've only done one superhero comic book, really. Yeah, and it was not informed by <laughs> modern superheroes. Like, I just got so poisoned against superheroes when I was first starting my career, and my comic would be thrown in the porn box in the back of the comic store while the rest of the store was overtaken by superheroes that I just have no... There's, yeah. I have no entry into that world without dredging up bad, bad feelings. All right. Let's ask you the kind of the flip question, which is to tell us something we don't know about yourself or um, about the world, a piece of trivia. Oh, my God. Well, I could tell you, but people always ask me what kind of tool I use to draw comics. You know, how do you get the lines to look like that? And that was one of the great mysteries of my childhood was trying to figure out, like, what kind of pen do they use to, to make the perfect lines? Hmm. And I finally, after experimenting with literally every pen ever made by man, <laughs> I finally learned, oh, they use a watercolor brush. So I went and bought a watercolor brush, and it's as difficult to use as you can imagine. But the, the interesting thing about these brushes is that a few years ago, they were made illegal in the U.S. because they were made with uh, the fur of these endangered Russian weasels. <laughs> What? They're weirdly, it's weirdly called a Kolinsky sable brush, but that's a euphemism for pestilent Siberian weasel <laughs> that apparently the Russians were just trying to get rid of because there were so many of these weasels. And uh, through some trade agreement, we couldn't import these brushes. So it was kind of a blow to find out, you know, you, this is the main thing I use in my livelihood and that they were now illegal. So I had to acquire them through the black market for, for a few years. You supported the killing of weasels with your work? As far as I know, they don't even kill them. They just, you know, pluck a few of their hairs and have 200-year-old Siberian woman <laughs> hand pot them in a little metal thing. But they are now back on the uh, 
on the okay list, so you can you can once again buy these brushes. Uh-huh. But it, I felt like I was an endangered species for a while. Daniel Klaus, his new book Patience is out now, and you're listening to that Ramones tune he made the video for, Sans Gump. You can watch it at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, Cameron Esposito returns to teach us the secret words of etiquette. Spaghetti again. It's magic. And the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll learn about a trendy ingredient chefs are battling in their walk-in coolers. Oh my God. It's scary. But first, it's time for a weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them is once again Cameron Esposito. We talked to her earlier in the show about her new comedy special, Marriage Material. Cameron, you ready to take on these questions? Yeah. All right. Well, this one is from Kay in Brooklyn, New York. She writes... How do you recover from going in for a hug and getting a handshake in return or vice versa? Uh. Okay, you go in for a hug, you get a handshake. You do What you do is, mm-hmm. okay, obviously, I'm great at handshakes because I'm a comic. That's like 90% of this job is being able to shake the person's <laughs> hand after they introduce you. Ladies and gentlemen, Cameron Suzio, nail the shake and then go into your jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What you do is you do the handshake and then the left hand comes around, backslap. <laughs> You know what uh, I mean? Uh, but like a sweet one yeah. so that it's it really is like a half handshake, half hug. Graceful. You can never be wrong. You're doing a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. Mm-hmm. It's a, a hodgepodge mm-hmm. of greetings. And it's professional and it's like, I see you as an equal. Wait, so do you prefer a backslap over a hug? Is that what you're saying? Well, it kind of depends. I'm a little bit short. Mm. So sometimes when a person is very tall, then I like to hug them because it <laughs> is very funny to just be a human belt for a little while. Feel their belt buckle on yeah. on your face. Like if dude, co- like if I know it's a really tall dude comic that I'm introducing, I'll hug that person because it makes me laugh. But I do think like as a woman, and this is a real thing, okay. if you want to really impress a lady, shake her hand. Really? Oh, mm. yeah. That is like the coolest thing you could do to a woman. I think I kind of do that anyway. Although here's something. Brendan and I were talking about this recently because we're writing a book about uh, dinner parties. You shake everyone's hand at the beginning of a party if you're just meeting them. But at the end of the party, it's- Hug everyone. That's right. Hugs all around. You should be hugging. Yeah. Everyone handshakes in. Everyone hugs out. Absolutely. But there you go, Kay. You're welcome. So so the solution, (laughs) Kay, is the the handshake and backslap move. Mm -hmm. Simultaneous. Perfect solve. And here's something from Ambivalent Sports Fan in North Carolina. Ambivalent sports fan writes, I recently went to a basketball game with a dear friend who I don't see too often. We spent the game catching up. A few minutes into it, a woman two rows ahead of us turned around and said we'd been talking constantly. And could we please stop? A college basketball stadium is not a quiet place, so we continued talking. Were we in the wrong? I I hate this person. I have to say, I I think, well, yes. Okay, we have to look at the actual question. They said two rows in front of them? Yeah. At a mm-hmm. basketball game. So they were being pretty They loud. were being <laughs> just loud mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. I think like when you're having a full conversation, like catching up, I just think don't yeah, go to that right. thing. There are other to places Starbucks. to go. Go to yeah, go to Starbucks, go to go to a restaurant, go to your go to a house. <laughs> go to a house that you own. Or apartment that you rent, rent a hotel rent an room, Airbnb a place, get it, just a <laughs> car. You can get in an Uber, an like, alleyway, there's so many talk- places <laughs> to get go. A, get a talking apartment. Just walk down the street. You know, walk down the street next to each other. But I think that you're really, you are a problem. And I think you made bad choices. This also happens, by the way, and this is terrible at rock shows sometimes. 
It's a rock show. They're loud musical events. You feel bad telling somebody to keep their voice down, but there are people that will be right over your shoulder, like yelling conversations I, over rock music. I had this experience, and I actually did ask that person to please. First of all, we were seeing Hall & Oates, because we've mm. got great taste in music. I, we were I'm at with the you. Greek theater in Los Angeles, and it's built into a very steep mountain. It's yeah. built into a mountainside. So the people sitting directly behind us their mouths were just exactly where your ears are at our ears. Like, I don't even know. I was <laughs> I can't even explain the closeness of their mouths to our ears. And they were having full on conversation right when I was uh-huh. trying to figure out if she was a rich girl. <laughs> and she or was. if she's gone too far. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And so I had to turn around and be like, please stop talking. I did not pay to hear you talk about where you parked your Audi. Oh, I paid were... to find out that about yeah. this man eater this guy's been talking it was about. So, it was so much more than where they parked their Audi. It was like a full-on just like how were everybody's jobs going. Did they obey you? They, this is actually what they said. They said, we are talking so loud because the people behind us are talking so loud. <laughs> how about you and I was like, stop talking? So you are inflicting upon me? What you've experienced yeah. in your own life to be terrible? Yeah, that's horrible. It's an awful way of dealing with a problem. No. So, ambivalent sports fan, please stop. What Cameron said, just walk next to each other outside. <laughs> please. <laughs> Talk there. It's an easy solution. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. All right, here's one more from Tess in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Tess writes, I noticed a friend slash colleague not responding to an email. A few days later, I texted her to see if everything was okay. No reply. Same thing a week later. Meanwhile, I noticed she's posting peppy things on Facebook. After one Mm. more attempt, I unfriended her and didn't pursue it (gasps) further. A year later, this is epic, in a store, (laughs) I hear the words, hi, Tess, and there she is. So what do you say to someone who ignores you and then later wants to engage you in conversation? Oh, this is a stressful question. (laughs) Once the follow-up texts have happened... I think this test has to just realize like that friendship was over. Why did that person say mm. hi to them in the grocery store? Because you can't ignore someone mm-hmm. in the universe. Yeah, yeah, they're right there in front of what you. What is she going to do? Hide in the cheese? Like she's in the grocery <laughs> store, but you just have a not friend conversation. What's what's a not friend conversation then? This is yes. what it is. Hi Tess. Oh, spaghetti for dinner? Yep, spaghetti for dinner again. Well, <laughs> Okay, bye. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't even I wouldn't ask any questions about the things that are not in the cart. Cuz you're in a grocery store, I wouldn't ask like how's the job? How's the anything? Yeah. Do not engage. Just keep it to just like, "Oh, oh, you're vegetarian now?" Yeah. Well, no, actually I'm not, but I just eat vegetarian food sometimes. Oh, okay, cool. I did that for a while as a vegan. Okay, well, see you later. You're like, "Hey, I stopped eating meat and being your friend. See you later." <laughs> yeah. Wow, I quit a lot of things, <laughs> yep. including you. Yeah, that's how you do it. And right. I also, right. I this woman's this woman's revenge tactic of going on Facebook and unfriending and all this stuff. Like, I think what social media has done to us is that it has made us everything is so heightened all the time. Oh, yeah. Right? Because it's like you have, yeah. if you send an email and then that's not responded to, then you try with a text or everything is 15 second response time or I'm going and I'm unfriending you, I'm blocking you. But it, when yeah. you see yeah. a person in the real world, I just think we got to remember what what did you used to do when you saw someone that you didn't like? Just use that mm-hmm. same tactic. We all like, know how to do spaghetti this. Spaghetti again? Spaghetti again. All right. Powerful words <laughs> from Cameron Esposito. Cameron, thank you very much for telling our audience how to behave. Yes, you bet. Cameron Esposito, her new special is called Marriage Material. And folks, if you have an etiquette dilemma, jot it down and send it along. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. 
And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. That's right. And today we're going to talk about eel. All right. Really, I wanted to say, today we ask, what's the deal with eel? But I resisted saying that. You actually did not resist that at all. No, you just said no. it right now, but go ahead. <laughs> I tried, but I failed. Good job. <laughs> uh, anyway, for the most part, Americans only know eel from Japanese cuisine. Of course, unagi sushi being the most obvious. And anago, right. Delicious. But this might be changing. Sierra Tishgart is senior editor at New York Magazine's Grub Street food blog, and she recently wrote an article about the emergence of eel on New York's restaurant menus. Hmm. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of eel, but to learn more, I met with her at High Street on Hudson, one of these eel-happy establishments. <laughs> and first, I asked Sierra what inspired the article. I love eel. It is always something I order when I'm at a Japanese restaurant, and it lends itself really well to a sweet, savory preparation. Mm-hmm. And whenever I see it on a menu, I get it. It's just one of those things for me. And I was really excited to start seeing it pop up on more and more menus in New York outside of Japanese cuisine. So uh, what kind of eel dishes have you been seeing? There is an eel sandwich at Harry and Ida's where Mm -hmm. they actually have an eel tank inside the restaurant. Wow, that's dramatic looking, let alone tasting. Uh, There is a blood sausage and eel dish at Mimi's in Soho. That sounds intense. (laughs) That sounds like a nightmare. What are we? Who am I kidding? Blood sausage and eel. I know, I know, right? Blood sausage is quite good, though. It sounds like if there was one of those (laughs) internet word generators for scary food items. Yes, yes, I think those would all be in it. Um, There is a brunch dish of Mission Chinese food that is um, eel wrapped in yuba. Yuba is noodles. Yuba is like tofu skin. Okay, okay. I think they also put cornflakes on it. Wow. It's kind of, they always have a wink there. Very brunchy. There is an eel salad at a place called Tay Company Mm -hmm. in the West Village Mm -hmm. that also has smoked eel. So why is not this happen sooner? Well, it's so hard. It requires an eel tack. Basically, you have to, like, bleed out the animal and then, like, tack it to a board because they're still so slimy and slippery. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so butchering, it's, like, really intense. One yeah. restaurant I interviewed... Um, I'm laughing, but not because I, I feel bad for the eels. Yeah, just I'm actually laughing because I'm a little bit... Um, there's a place called out. Harry and Ida's that I that I featured in the story, and they said that the eels are so strong that sometimes they open up their walk-in refrigerator and they have escaped from the boxes and are just slipping around the restaurant. Oh, nightmare. <laughs> um, so butchering them is a whole intense process. Yeah. Sourcing them is actually quite difficult because there are major sustainability issues. Well, that's what I was, I was talking to someone at the Monterey Bay Aquarium mm-hmm. at Seafood Watch uh, the other week, and they said, don't eat eel. Yes. There was an argument to be made. Um, it seems like there is one eel guy in Connecticut who is providing these restaurants and does it as does it as above the board as you can. And it's an eel farm. Yes. So All right. I just I see you look a little guilty there. I know. Like, I, I mean, this article it's like eel. anything with these ingredients. You can make a strong case against eating meat. There are problems. Yeah. There are problems yeah. there, and there is yeah. there's no denying that. Yeah. Um, so they are butchering the eel in house, okay. which is. A big time very intense, yeah. very time consuming, labor intensive. But then, even after they butcher it, they, they smoke it. And this is because eel is, when you get it in its natural state, probably exactly what people think it is, which is just really chewy and hard. Yes, <laughs> it's very tough. And fishy and tough. Um, one chef, uh, Will Horowitz from Harriet mm. Ida, said it's like trying to fillet a tire. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're sitting here on High Street on Hudson. And we're looking at uh, eel tartine, I mm-hmm. suppose, eel toast. With It's absolutely beautiful. There's watermelon radishes. and There's some smoked egg. The eel is really the main highlight, and yeah. it has been prepared for four days. So this one item on their dinner menu yeah. that is not their signature item, yeah. 
sells a decent amount, but yeah. it's not like, oh, everyone's lining up for this eel. It takes four days of work, which is quite amazing. And do you know what, it, what they do? So the chef, John Nodler, he brines the eel in aromatics and salt for two days. Mm-hmm. He hot smokes it until the skin crisps, and then he packs it in olive oil. That sounds kind of delicious. That does bring Sounding over better to you. That's right. <laughs> and then what they do um, is they take scraps of one of their breads that they make in-house. Mm-hmm. They puree the scraps with a local porter and pickled habanero, and they make a Japanese-style eel glaze. It's a little bit sweet, spicy, yeah, and yeah, sour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of work to make this little piece of protein. A lot of work. <laughs> All right. <laughs> For a $14 dish. All right, so let's taste this. Let's taste it. Mmm. Wow. It's a pretty complex toast. I mean, mm-hmm. you got the crunch, you got the savory, you got the cool, you got the hot. It's a lot going on. In the heart of it, I think I get, I can find the smoky eel. It I is, really like it. The texture is really unique. Like, I like eel yes. and sushi, but I feel like this is, gives a certain mouth resistance that is uncommon. It's a very fatty fish. It's mm-hmm. an oily fish. Why do you think chefs are turning to eel if it is so complicated to make, if... Guests are a little squeamish. Why does it happen? I think it's really a point of pride for these chefs. Um, it's really kind of incredible how you're seeing even a place like this that is quite casual, putting that much attention and care into a dish from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they see it as a wonderful learning opportunity for themselves and their staff. And it's also, yeah, it's a little bit of a badge of honor of like, if you know how eel works, Yeah, it really is quite impressive. And I think the New York restaurant landscape is so competitive right now. Yeah, And you're seeing... A lot of really talented chefs open up pizza restaurants and burger joints, mm-hmm. and that's all great. Mm-hmm. I love pizza and burgers. Yep, yep. Uh, but I think the eel is representative of a bit of a backlash to that, mm. in that, you know, screw the stuff everyone knows and likes. We're going to challenge people yeah. a bit, and we're going to challenge ourselves. I don't think the burger's in any danger here, though. No, the burger is in no danger. <laughs> Sierra Tishgart of New York Magazine. Her article is called The Hardcore Ingredient More Chefs Are Serving as a Point of Pride. And congratulations, Brendan. No eel rhymes in that interview. You know, I figured you wouldn't be able to deal with it. I revoke my congratulations. Just keeping it real. <laughs> All right, folks, and that brings us almost to the end of this episode. Boo. Boo. But Just like. we have an important matter to get to first, your letters. Yes, our email and voicemail inboxes runneth over. So here's item number one. Uh, this year, we aired our first annual Notskers episode, which was a special show dedicated to everything we thought was underrepresented at the Oscars. And on that show, along with the hosts of the podcast Another Round... We lamented the fact that when it comes to people of color appearing in sci-fi films, the list is pretty short. Like Yoda short. It's a problem. But John in D.C. wrote to say the same doesn't necessarily go for sci-fi literature. While there's still a problem with diversity in science fiction, there are many instances of trailblazers, people of color, specifically those who inspired me to become a science fiction writer, people such as Samuel Delaney, who won his first Hugo in 1967. He was the youngest to ever win. Octavia Butler, whose novels have inspired an entire generation of young people of color to take up science fiction as a profession. There is an entire world of science fiction that is being worked on by people of color. All true, John, and thanks for adding to our summer reading. Mm. On our website, we've actually posted a list of great sci-fi books written by people of color. All right, now on to a hairier predicament. Last week, our small talk story centered around Peter Sagan, the bad boy champion of the bicycle racing world who caused a huge scandal 
by not shaving his legs before a race. All right, maybe not a steroid-level scandal, but we take what we can get around here. We really do. So on the show, we noted cyclists traditionally shave their legs to cut down on wind resistance. But a veritable peloton of listeners wrote in to say there's more to it than that, including Lara from Seattle. I know there's a lot of actual good reasons why cyclists shave their legs. The big thing, when you crash, road rash is much less severe on clean-shaven skin It's the friction, you know, and the hair, all of that together makes it much worse. My husband just had a crash like a couple of weeks ago. So we just recently learned, again, (laughs) why it's good. Nice to know, Laura. And I guess our takeaway for Peter Sagan is... Being a rebel isn't easy. Oh, but Godspeed, you crazy leg-shaven punk. Yeah. <laughs> and our final letter is about a matter of etiquette. Last week, Brendan and writer Heather Haverleski came down vehemently against forcing guests to remove their shoes before entering your home. Which prompted a listener named Adam in Los Angeles to write in. One of the recommendations was if you had to take off your shoes, to give a cold stare to the host. And my girlfriend is Japanese. If I went to her parents' house and walked in with shoes, I'd be in a lot of trouble. In Japanese culture, it's rude not to remove your shoes, and keeping the floors clean is very important. So I would recommend to trim your toenails, wear socks, and if you really don't want to take off your shoes, maybe get some disposable plastic booties to put over them. Brendan, I'm looking at you. Good point, Adam. For the record, in our uncut conversation, we did talk about how certain cultures mandate shoe removal, Mm -hmm. but we edited that out, which in retrospect maybe wasn't the greatest idea. But I'll also say in the U.S., you might want to let people know in advance that you run a shoe-free house, Mm. so we know to bring those booties. Noted. (laughs) I love that phrase. Uh, And folks, please know our DPD website is always open, whether you're barefoot, sandaled, bootied, or whatever. Stop by and leave us a comment at dinnerpartydownload.org. Now that's our show for this week, folks. Speaking of our website, (laughs) that's where you'll also find news about next week's show, as well as everything from this week's cocktail recipe to information about joining us on our trip to Cuba this fall. Mm. Basically, it's like Amazon, except for cool DPD things. Delightful. Yeah. You can also keep up with us all week long on Instagram and Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. And while you're online... If you haven't already, stop by iTunes, subscribe to our podcast, and leave a review. It really helps us out. It does. Thanks in advance for that. Per usual, we would like to also thank our producer, Jackson Musker, our associate producer, Nina Patak, our associate digital producer, Christina Lopez, our interns, Christian Coons and Carla Javier, our engineers, Chris Clark and Ben Tolliday, and Larissa Anderson, our executive producer. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.